everyone. Thank you so much for joining the Behind Company Lines podcast. Today, we have Eric Olden, CEO and co-founder of Strata Identity. Strata Identity is building the next generation of distributed identity management for the multi-cloud world. Eric, I'm so excited to chat with you, not only because you're kind of a low-key celebrity in the tech world from what you've built and what you've pioneered in terms of identity. So it's really excited to not only think about kind of the conception of, of how companies were thinking about identity and, and the single kind of sign-in process and how that's been able to communicate with other technology, but also where is it going? We have crypto, we have all these different tools that are not necessarily meant to speak to each other, but we want them to as users and, and we're almost not willing to compromise that ease of experience. So I'm really excited to see what you guys are building, who you partnered with. But before we get into all that, what were you doing before you started the company? Yeah, thank you for having me on, Julian, and great, great intro. And, and to answer your question about where I was before starting Strata, I am a serial entrepreneur and I got my start in startups and identity well back in 27 years ago when I was in college. And I really, I guess, didn't know any better that my best friend and I from high school probably should have finished college before we started a company, but we were just excited. There was a lot going on. 1995, 1994, yeah. that's when Netscape had just come out. And we were basically like, hey, let's figure out a way to bring security into this new wild world and uh, got right into it. And two guys in an idea turned into a 300 person company. We we're ready to go public, but the dot-com crash resulted in us taking an acquisition instead. And it was, it was a great outcome and a great way to, to get into startups and learn about how to build things at hyperscale. And, and we grew very quickly, but that was my first company Securant, and our product was clear trust. And I was fortunate to work in the early days, co-authoring co a standard called SAML and uh, mm -hmm. security assertion markup language. And that we brought into the public market, made it a public standard, and it's been a huge success. All the clouds use it today, and yeah. it's what allows people to use their identity in, in more than one place and do that in a secure way. After that, I took some time off and I got into venture capital, spent some time helping some other companies get off the ground. And coincidentally, in identity and security. And then when my non-compete went down, I started my second identity company, Simplified, and grew that. And that was a lot of fun. Coincidentally, sold that to RSA as well. So I've sold two of my security companies to RSA. And then I found myself at Oracle. And I had been yeah. responsible for running Oracle security and identity division. And that meant all of the security and identity for the Oracle cloud, for the SaaS applications in the enterprise software. And it was a very different experience than my startup roots and was responsible for hundreds of people and a huge portfolio and great customers that I learned a lot and really it, enjoyed my time at Oracle, but when I saw the direction at Oracle moving to just focus on the Oracle cloud, I saw the opportunity for multi-cloud. And so I got the 
small team together and I said, Hey guys, let's go solve this problem. And it seems like a very hard to do thing today. No one's doing it. Everyone I talk to thinks I'm crazy for trying it. So that all sounds exactly <laughs> like the kind of market to go after. So we left Oracle yeah. and we started Strata and we've been, did that now we're going into our fourth year in August and it's been just a thrilling ride, but whole background yeah. to net and out startup, multiple startups, venture capital acquisitions, exits, big enterprise and coming back to my startup roots with Strata. Yeah. Yeah. It's so excited to think about kind of at the conception when you were thinking about security, what that meant. Now we think about security as protecting my personal information and for companies to hold some of that information, not to be compromised and, and all that information be distributed. Is that how you think about security or, or we're thinking about security in regards to what are the components for our audience context are important in the security space and in the different players and what are you protecting? What's, how are you protecting it? And why is it important? Yeah. Identity management is a very nuanced niche within security and cyber, and it can get really complicated quickly because there's so many different variations, but I like to start with first principles, right? Very core. Mm -hmm. What are we trying to do? And the way I see identity management is real simple. You've got to manage the relationship between users and applications and the data that those applications deliver. That's it. The three things to manage the relationship between those three is very, very complicated. And it's a simple thing, yeah. but it's not simplistic. And what that means is you, yeah. you need to always figure out, well, how are we going to manage those three main mm -hmm. elements? And so when I think about securing that, you find the same patterns we've been using for a couple decades all have a lot of the letter A involved. Yeah. So the four A's, the authentication, are you who you say you are? Access control, mm -hmm. can you get to what you're trying to get to? Authorization, can you perform an action that you're trying to, like make a wire transfer or settle a trade? Mm -hmm. And uh, audit. And that means being able to, is there a record of what you did? You could argue the fifth A is administration. And that's how you manage all of the compliance and the governance of all of those other things. So the four or five A model has been really, really effective throughout all of these generations of technology, starting with the web back in the late nineties going to software as a service in the mid 2000s. And now where we are in multi-cloud, all of those generations have those four five A's. And what we're doing now with Strata is applying those five elements to applications that run on different clouds and where your infrastructure runs in different places. So fundamentally comes back to distributed architectures. Yeah. And how are you able to do that with systems that, you know, don't, don't cooperate, don't communicate our different languages, maybe even have competing protocols? What allows you the ability to be able to 
build something that can be used across this multi-cloud kind of ecosystem that we all are familiar with? Well, from an engineering standpoint, a software architecture approach, the, the key is two things. One, it is an abstraction layer and the second are standards. So I'll start with the first one. You think about the abstraction layer, when you, you look at where abstraction layers have worked really well in, in technology, probably the most successful one that people would recognize are VMware and how they turn mm -hmm. physical machines into virtual machines and run those VMs and later Docker containers and all of that. But you're running these virtualized computers on top of something called a hypervisor. And that allowed you to take your different vendors, maybe your Dell servers okay. and your IBM servers and your Sun servers and say, look, it doesn't matter what hardware I run it on. I just want to focus on those virtual machines. And if I want to run those on a machine that is in my data center, we'll call that a private cloud. If I want to run that compute in a public cloud, then I'd use something like Amazon or Azure or Google. So now you've got an abstraction layer that you can move mm -hmm. things around. And when you apply that to identity, instead of virtualizing servers, we virtualize identity systems. So that means yeah. like imagine Okta or Azure Active Directory or Oracle. So all of these different technology that you use to manage identities have been normalized through a new layer of software, which is what we produce yeah. called identity orchestration. So that allows you to yeah. separate your applications and run those on whatever identity system that, that you want to. So that's the abstraction layer. Yeah. Yeah. And describe it. One thing that always comes to mind is, is the evolution of a lot of technology in, in the standardization of a lot of things, which is founders building products that aren't necessarily that robust to build anymore, whether it's low code, no code, but within this orchestration, there's all these other APIs and plugins to really create this experience that the user at least is, is familiar with. There's a, there's the standardized service. How will have the trends kind of evolved in terms of identity and, and how have companies kind of tried to stay up? giving people access to their platforms, whatever, with that level of security, is it hard? Is it easy? Do you typically have to build a team? What, what would you do if you didn't have Strata? Well, most of the time without software, you have to do it by hand. And that typically means, depending on how many applications that you're dealing with, you're going to have to hire a big team to manage a whole portfolio of applications. And the work that is involved is refactoring an application. So it yeah. works with a different identity system. So it'd be kind of like you own a hotel that has a hundred rooms and you need to change the way the lock works because you want to bring in a new fancy iPhone yeah. electronic lock or key, but you got to change a hundred doors. Well. You could either swap them out each of the doors and whatever that costs and however long that takes, or you can come along with another piece of technology, put it on the door that says, 
if someone shows up with their phone or they use the old fashioned room key card that either one can be used with that door the way it is. So yeah. metaphorically, that's what identity orchestration is doing is we're putting a piece of technology on the door so you don't have to change the lock and the technology changes the way in which your new form of key works with the door and basically translates the new one into the old one. So the door is like, yeah. Hey, it works the same way. Everyone's happy and it was easy to roll out. Yeah. That's fascinating in particular because is it in that use case, is it that you're kind of changing the way the phone communicates with the lock through its RFA system or is the individual kind of room, its own identity and the keys kind of get changed per user. How is that relationship between the user and what they're trying to access? Is that different or is it just adding another layer of technology onto it to make it, uh, I guess, uh, more widely adopted? Yeah, I think the, the way that it works best is when you can roll something out that uses what people already have. So in that example yeah. of using your phone as a way to unlock a door that it works in the same way from a security standpoint, meaning we can take your full, your, your face scanning that's on your phone or your fingerprint reader on your phone. And we can say, look, instead of using a password, we'll let the phone scan your face. And if that checks out, then we'll believe it's really you, Julian. And you don't have to get a new password because you're born with the face that you've got and it's always with you. Yeah. And so that is a, a real simple way to make it easy for people who need to log in or get to the application to say, look, I, I don't have yeah. to remember a password or remember some token. I just put my phone to my face and it'll scan me and that'll be an even more secure way to get to yeah. the application. So in that case, you made it easier for the end user, but you also made it a lot more secure because you don't have to deal with the password. Yeah. And then on the, the application side, that's where orchestration can say, Hey, the application wasn't written to handle the face scanning. It, maybe it's like mm -hmm. five years old. Instead, the orchestration abstraction will take that and then tell the application, we know that the user is who they say they are. So yeah. we're going to tell you what you need to know, Mr. Application, so that you can treat this user as a secure, trusted user. And so that translation from the face scanning to the application, that's where the magic of orchestration kicks in where you transform yeah. one session into another and make the application more secure, the user more secure while making everything easier across the board. How does that change the, the experience that, or I guess for, for companies, how does that change their user experience? And what does that mean from a user's perspective to be able, it's almost like this web three concept where you opt in, and you opt out using your biometrics. And so I'm, I'm interested because that has such a beautiful play with community and jumping from community to, to community in a physical space, it's different, but what does that mean for companies who have more physical experiences, but want to give people access 
Is that changed kind of the the modern experience or or how people will interact with with places and technology in in your mind? Yeah, it has. It's really changed things, and I think there's probably two communities of users that are top of mind. One is a company or organization's workforce, and by their employees, their contractors, partners, and on the other category, you've got the customers and you're talking about your Mm -hmm. subscribers, if you're a media company or your patients, if you're a hospital. So workforce and consumer customer and modern companies have to manage both of those. And when they're thinking about the user experience with a customer, the bar is really high. I think we've all become accustomed to buying things online using your phone. And we've all been in that experience where, oh, I want to buy something. Oh, I have to create an account before I can buy something. Well, if that means like seven or eight steps to create an account just to buy something, people bail on that. I do it all the time. On the other hand, if you have that one, create an account with your Google ID or something like that, your Twitter ID, then it's like two clicks and you've got everything taken care of. And so I think that kind of consumer experience where you really need to cater to that convenience and the ease of use, that's what's happening Mm -hmm. in the consumer market. And it's moving over to the workforce because sure, when you're talking about your workforce, you're paying them to be employees and Maybe in the past, it was like, all right, you got to use this login authentication token that's on your keychain, Mm -hmm. and it's a hassle if you lose one and all the other kind of overhead. So what's been nice is that the workforce is benefiting from all the advances in the consumer so that they also can use their phone to scan their face and get into the applications that they need to as an employee. So it's been an interesting cross-pollination between the customer market and the workforce, but it's doing the same thing. Because at the end of the day, you need to authenticate, check access, authorize, and audit whether you're dealing with your workforce or dealing with customer. Yeah. It's so fascinating thinking about, like, obviously the initial, I'm sure, value add to companies is allowing people to use their product without, with ease of, of, of signing in and opting in and things like that. But think about what strat identity is, it, it's so much beyond that because it affects the individual layer. So how do you think about the other possibilities in terms of building and what are others kind of surprising or, or unconventional use cases for a strat identity that you're particularly excited about being that it's not just a business problem it, it, it can solve but it's an individual and a human problem in terms of opting into almost everywhere, doing everything you could do. So at a concert, you can do so. It seems like the ability that this technology has for the users, it's just, I mean, it, it, it's, it's kind of blue ocean. Like there's so much possibility out there. How do you kind of identify, or I guess managing what you're building now to the possibilities of it, seeing that, I mean, the, the use cases are just beyond imagination. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's an exciting time to be an identity. I think one recent project that we just a couple of weeks ago brought to market at the RSA conference 
was a collaboration with Strata and EY, the consulting company, and yeah. Microsoft. And what we did together was bring the verified identity to LinkedIn. And what this means is that from a business standpoint, you can verify that an employee who says on LinkedIn that they work at EY, we've actually cryptographically verified that that's true. And we create yeah. in the block ledger a record that, for instance, Eric is an employee at EY and EY will validate that. In fact, I do work for the company. I don't, but you get the idea. Then there's a record to say to anyone else that's on LinkedIn, when they see, it's almost like a blue check mark that used to happen on Twitter, but it's like being verified yeah. on LinkedIn and that motion creates a lot more trust and authenticity yeah. that I represent that I work at a certain company that anyone that takes that representation, maybe an employer can say, yeah, actually it's almost like a little background check that's put into your, <laughs> your online profile. So a year ago, I wasn't thinking that that would be a thing. And here we are, we just brought it to market very quickly. But I think that was an interesting, unanticipated use of identity technology with the convergence of decentralized block ledger and the idea yeah. to really bring more confidence and trust into a social network in the form of LinkedIn. So that was pretty fun. How do you do that? Do you mint a smart contract on, on Ethereum and then use that as your ledger and kind of everybody's tied into that? Or yeah, what in particular, what allowed you to use not only, obviously cryptography has been around for, for years, but obviously putting on a blockchain ledger is kind of a new and inventive way to use it. How are you able to do that in, in the ability to verify a company individually? Do you have to mint them at particular companies? What is involved in that process? Yeah, well, that was the, the interesting part of the collaboration. So each of the groups brought something to the solution and underlying decentralized block ledger technology comes from Azure and Microsoft's made a big mm -hmm. investment in the Azure cloud so that you can build these web three technologies and have all of that complicated crypto and all of that done just in the, in the cloud platform. So that was really yeah. powerful. And then the role that Strata plays is we need to run at, when you're getting this validation done, right? The moment of minting the validated ID, then there needs to be a check to say, go to EY in this example to talk to their database and say, Hey, does Eric Olden with this email address work at EY and the yeah. database gives a yes or no. And then to the, the strata software, which when we get that, yes, this person is a member of our organization, what strata does is wait for that signal. And when that happens, then we write to the other side to say, yep, take this person, yeah. Julian, and say that they in fact do work with EY and we have a record of that transaction of that validation at that point in time. 
Yeah. And it's, it's irrefutable because the cryptography behind making sure that all of those records are something you can't yeah. tamper and, and counterfeit. So, and then EY was the integration team that glued the technologies together. So Microsoft provided the block ledger. We provided the orchestration, which checked the different cloud databases and EY stitched it all together and it runs on top of LinkedIn. It's so fascinating thinking about also, like, do you think about the challenge of having multiple, I have to think about how many emails I have for different websites, ones for newsletters, another one's for work. And, but across those different platforms, I have different identities in how, in, in, in their relationship to me. How does Strata think about it, or is that a challenge that a lot of companies thinking about in terms of one individual or one actor using multiple identities across different platforms? Do you compile those together? Do you create different identities for that? Have you thought about that challenge? Is that something you think about? You'd love for you to respond to that. Yeah, well, there's, that becomes a really big problem and where, where you've got identities in a lot of different places. And the, the security issue there is the vast majority of these places use passwords and the human nature side of it is that people use the same password because we're lazy and you can have the same password in 50 different places. So the exposure is not that the bank where you have your password is going to get compromised. Why go after the bank when you can go after, I don't know, your, your sneakerhead person who likes to buy stuff off of this website that's yeah. put together shoestring, which use the same password. Yeah. So a good hacker is going to go and break into the weekly protected system and find out, oh, well, this email address and this password, I'm going to go now check it against all of the banks. And that's how people steal your identity is they get it not from your bank, but from the random place that people reuse their passwords. Okay. So that's the problem. The more places you do it, the greater your exposure. And so that creates a bigger problem over time. So what do you do about it? Well, if you have the option at any of the important places where money's moving and, and legal information is going on, opt for their multi-factor authentication. A lot of banks are bringing that to market and it's always better and more secure than a password. Full stop. I don't have to know much about any of the variations of the brands. I can just tell you passwords are like the worst. So step one, yes. use multi-factor where it's given. And then there's a cool thing that's going on with standards around this an identity called FIDO and there's a new thing called FIDO2 and the technology is called pass keys and the technology beyond is very sound it's cryptographically managed and secure and why I say that is there's no password involved but there's a cryptographically reliable instance of your identity in your device so all of the big platform vendors got together and said, we're going to implement this. So Apple said, we're going to build it into the iPhone and 
Google said they're going to build it into Android and Microsoft said they're going to build it into Windows and Apple also put it into Mac. So what does all that mean? It means that you can connect your face scan with your digital identity in the form of a pass key that's on your phone. And when you go to a website or something else that says, Hey, you can use your pass key here, then you can use that as a bring your own multi-factor authentication. Yeah. So it, it's a really cool way to put the power in people's hands and say, look, you want to bring better security than a password? Use pass keys. It's free. And then you can use it at all the places that accept pass keys, which is becoming more and more every day because it's a standard. Yeah. And the bank can say, look, we'll support FIDO too. We don't care if you use Apple's or Microsoft's or Google, they're all conformed to the same standard. So it makes it really easy for the banks and others to accept it. So that's what's new. It's coming out and it's definitely worth checking out. It's pretty yeah. cool. Thinking about switching gears here, thinking about whether it's external or internal, what are some of the biggest risks that you think the company faces today? Risk is something that we live in a world that you can't get away from risk. And so we're always thinking about the, not whether or not it's secure, but whether or not we can manage the risk related to that. And so companies that are startups are, uh, the, the bigger you get, the more risk that you're exposed to because your surface area grows. And so you really want to make sure that you have ways to mitigate and manage that risk. You're never going to get rid of it altogether. So instead you want to quantify it and understand it. And so we do a lot of work all the time, really training our team about hacking and security breaches and how to be on the lookout for people trying to fish you and things like that. So we train our team yeah. to notice, Hey, you get a text. It's not coming from the CEO asking for a favor because you're busy. We get phishing attacks on the daily, uh, probably yeah. double digits at my company. So this is something that literally every single day you have to be on the lookout. And so we really take that very seriously. And then we also make sure that there's no passwords in our world, meaning on our platform, we don't allow passwords to be used to log in. So we just by designing it out in the beginning, we were able to avoid vast majority of compromises that happen because people get hacked and they lose their passwords. So we know ever use passwords in the first place. So we don't have any of that exposure. <laughs> and we did that by kind of drinking our own champagne and bringing this multi-factor passwordless technology into our product itself. So those are kind of the risks. People are always trying to hack us, but we don't ever take anything for granted. Always be vigilant, always be on the yeah. lookout, always be paying attention and designing things so that your security as a first principle doesn't get out of sight. Yeah. It's so fascinating thinking about it. So you built a lot of the tech, I'm sure like, was it when you were building strata and you were bringing on people onto the team, when you say, bring on say Slack, for instance, did you already start building 
the kind of authentication piece with Strata in mind with that company or that product or platform, or say you're using Salesforce or these other tools. And if you're not using that password, but you're using Strata, are you then kind of using that relationship in a way to pitch it to that potential client or customer? Like, it, it seems like you already have this accessibility and use case with this relationship. It's almost that much easier to kind of break through and talk about other ways that platforms like that can utilize, you know, your, you, your technology. Have you thought about that? Have that been an opportunity for you? Or is that, am I just dreaming here? No, you're not dreaming. And it is a, an opportunity. I think one of the things that we lean into is security first. And when customers of Strata, they see the mentality, they see the discipline, they see the investment that we make and all of our experience yeah. having done this, like collectively, the executive team has over 200 years of experience. So in security, in cyber. So we're the teams that have built all of the security products, not all of them, but a large number of the most popular products from Oracle, from RSA, from Salesforce, from you name it, Ping, Identity, Auth0, and Okta, right? So we've taken all of that experience and put it into this software platform that we built. And it comes through when our customers bring us through a compliance process and they ask their hundred questions on hey, show us how you do this and show us how you protect against that. And we have it all documented and it's all there for them to see me. And that's usually one of the fastest things for us to build through yeah. is the ability to prove that do things the right way. And so I think that's been a big, we've turned something that would have been a barrier into a accelerator, right? And so instead of yeah. doing, oh, we've got to explain all of this, we feed, we productize it and say, yep, here's how it works. Here's how it is free for the world to see. So makes people feel a lot more confident. Yeah, it's, it's a brilliant idea. And, and it's, it's such, it seems like an easy entry into a lot of opportunities or clients or partnerships in, in a way that you kind of show it's, it's value already. And I would, I love asking founders this question because it's, it's such a unique way you kind of, like you said, you turn say a problem or a barrier into an opportunity in a conversation. I always like this next section, I call it my founder FAQ. So I want to hit you with some rapid fire questions and I want to see what you got for me. So real quick, I always like to open it up with an easy one. What's particularly hard about your job day to day? Hard thing about my job day to day is that we're creating a new market. And so we have to do a lot of heavy lifting just to have people understand what we're doing. Different than say adding a new feature or bellow whistle to something that people are familiar with. So we spend a lot of our time evangelizing, hey, multi-cloud is different than the past. So when you get to that point, this is where our kind of software is going to help you. So a lot of evangelism yeah. in these early markets. Yeah. What are the, what are the different tactics in being like an evangelist founder versus someone who may be a founder of a commodity or a founder of a platform that has a competition, so they don't have to necessarily build up a story as much, but how is the philosophy and the tactics different from say a product that, you know, how already has strong product market fit. It's like, you got a big total addressable market, all, all the buzzwords you hear when, when you're thinking about scaling business, but the evangelist founder has a lot of. It's just a lot in front of them in terms of the education component. 
How is your philosophy different? How are the strategies that you deploy different being an evangelist founder? Yeah, it's a, it's very different than other models where you're doing an incremental thing or you're building into something that people know. And the advice that I would give is to spend the very beginning really obsessing about the customer problem and don't write software, don't write marketing, just really find out how to interview the market about the problem that you want to solve. And at Strata, we spent over a year and a half doing that. And that meant interviewing dozens of companies and asking them, what is your top priority that isn't getting done? And having a really open-ended conversation where you're not biasing what they're saying based on what you want them to say. And that's really hard because oftentimes founders, you're like, oh, I'm going to build this, this thing. So why don't I go ask people if they want to buy that thing? Sounds like it's the same thing, but it's totally different because what happens is the bias that people, they say what they think they, that you want them to say. And so they don't want to say your baby's ugly. So they'll tell you, oh yeah, that's a great product. I would definitely buy that. And then you go down, you build that. And you go back to them and say, well, I built it. Can I have your order? And you go, well, it's actually yeah. not an important thing for me. I've got to buy 10 other things before I can even look at that. So why don't you come back later? Because yeah. you're number 12 on the list. If you're not number one, two, or three on their list, don't build that product. Don't start that company. Yeah. Because it's very, very hard to get onto someone's priority list. You can't make someone's yeah. priority. You need to fit into that. And so I think yeah. that's probably the evangelist kind of market making approach is to really be a reflection of what people are saying. Is their yeah. top one, two or three priority? And then once you start to focus on a market, the next content that you produce isn't about your product. It's about the problem. Mm -hmm. And so in Strata's case, we wrote all these, I wrote probably seven white papers, all about the problem of multi-cloud, all about the problem of identity, all the problems of modernization and authentication and all of these things. And I was creating this corpus of thought leadership and you put those PDFs out, put them on your website because you will need the search engine optimization to kick in, right? So the sooner you plant yeah. that content, the sooner you're going to have an index and relevance. What are we doing this for? Because what we need to do is know when someone searches that we don't know, they go onto Google and they search, how do I solve identity for multi-cloud? At that point, Google is going to say, ah, I came across this content written by this person and I'm going to give you a link to that. Mm. And the more that people start to go to that content, that starts to build more and more credibility. So all of this stuff takes a long time and it's very, you need to be very humble because you don't want to talk about you or the company or your solution because people aren't searching for that. They don't search for something yeah. they search for that exists, they search for the answer to the problem. So 
it's kind of taking a long way in many sense, in, in a certain sense, but yeah. that's the only way to go. And when you do that yeah. the right way, then all of a sudden, if you're lucky and your problem becomes a market, then you've got all of the mm -hmm. track record that puts you into that high ranking on the search results. And that's matters for enterprise yeah. company, not just like consumer companies that care about Google ranking. So sorry, that's a long answer, but it's, it's unconventional. And I think that's <laughs> no. the, the, the poem. Yeah. 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 And, and thinking about obviously that was great advice for other founders, what's something in particular that you're better at now as a founder that you wish you were better at earlier on, anything kind of come to mind? I think one of the things that now I've been a venture back CEO three times, one of the things that I have is a recognition that you need to make decisions based on very limited information. And it's better to acknowledge that you don't have enough information to make a data-driven decision than to extrapolate from a tiny bit of data to think, oh, I've, I'm convinced based on these two data points that I'm right. And consequently, I've been more deliberate about managing expectations about decisions that I need to make that require a lot of data. I try and put those off for as long as I can, as I get as much data around that as I can. So I have a yeah. thing I like to, to say, I think Voltaire was the first to say it, but don't make perfect the enemy of good. And so what I mean by that is, yeah, you may not sell to everybody that you talk to, but it's better to talk to more people than just the ones that buy from you because you get better data and it's the data set that you need in order to make an informed decision or a forecast. And so really saying, look, I don't want to make a forecast if I don't have confidence in the data and don't say I can't give a forecast, go get the data and then yeah. come around with the forecast. So it's yeah. just being data driven and it's always a lot more work than you may wish it would be to get that kind of information. Yeah, well, it's, you bring up a, an interesting point being that the landscapes change, VC dollars are not as readily available. And, and I think there's a lot of changing in the way that they invest in terms of thinking about profitable companies that drive revenue versus users and eyeballs and things like that. I feel like there's a, a little bit of a paradigm shift here. So for those founders out there, what can they be doing to create a better narrative, a better product, or even just a, a better case for a company or for a venture group to invest in that founder, being that the landscape has completely changed. And, and I think from what I've seen is there's a, a big incentive to be a mature company with strong operating principles so that you can kind of not only, even if you're not growing hand over fist, month over month, you can at least track what that progress is. In, in that vein, what are some things that founders can start doing to start making themselves more competitive for when they need to start fundraising, being that the landscape's changed? Yeah, I think the, the thing that's really changed in funding, it's all cyclical, right? So it's in constant change. And the thing that has changed specifically in probably the last 12 months has been a shift from the priority on startups to grow at any cost 
and now it's <laughs> to extend runway as long as you can. And so it's, it's, it, it, it's, you're lucky if you can make that pivot in strategy before you're in one of those rounds. Right. And so mm -hmm. you can come up with an operating plan that you could be successful with and that fits the, the climate that you're going into I'll be specific yeah. in the end of 2021, right? So the fourth quarter of mm. 2021, people couldn't get enough of startups and the valuations were astronomical and you could go and you'd have VCs saying, oh, I'll give you a better valuation because whatever the reason, right? And so valuations were very much in the favor of the founders. And that shifted very materially within six months. So by the second quarter of April is when I saw it, April of 2022, the conversation had snapped all the way in the other direction where it was, hey, yeah. the world has changed. The public equity markets are recorrecting and therefore valuations are a fraction of what they were three months earlier. And why does that matter? Well, when valuations are higher, you can raise more money at the same mm -hmm. amount of dilute. And with that higher amount of money, you can hire more people. And ostensibly, if you're hiring sales teams, you're going to get more revenue because each sales team is mm -hmm. going to produce more sales. So when the amount of money that you can raise goes down because valuations collapse and terms move in the favor of the investor, now you're thinking, well, I may have half the amount of capital I was expecting. And therefore it's not about getting all of the, the top line revenue. It's about making that smaller amount of capital last longer so that you can prove yeah. whatever stage you're in. You can prove you're getting to product market fit if you're a series A company, or you can prove you've got a good repeatable go-to-market if you're a series B company. And the yardstick or the goal line had changed where now it's all about survive and don't raise money for as long as you can. So that I think is, yeah. is the kind of thing that I keep my eye on all the time. I'm always watching the burn rate and we basically have said, look, we're not going to hire our way into growth. We're going to execute our way into growth. And so instead of hiring yeah. headcount, we get a focus on productivity. So the sales teams are all expected to do hit their quota. And in our case, fortunately, that's gone really well. But that's a market different plan than if we had gone out to fund in the end of 2021, we had a very different playbook. Mm -hmm. So being really responsive to the market conditions, I think is mm -hmm. what will separate companies from those who need to do layoffs from those who didn't hire too many people in the first place. And you mm -hmm. can hit equilibrium one on either way, but it's easier if you don't have to lay people off because that's very disruptive and no one wants to go through that. 
So yeah. being really adept at reading those signals and adjusting your hiring plan and your capital, I think that's the the balance that entrepreneurs need to focus on right now. I do anyways. Yeah, yeah. I know we're coming to the close of the episode, so I always like to ask this question because I love how founders extract knowledge out of anything that they ingest, whether it's early in your career or now, what books or people have influenced you the most today? Books or people? Yeah, I think in terms of, of books, there are a couple, I was just talking to my daughter this morning and we were talking about two different books and one is a book by it called Siddhartha by Herman Hess. And it's kind of an explanation of, of the story of Buddhism basically, but in a very accessible way. And that framed a lot of my outlook on life and Hmm. my daughter, she's 16 and she was asking what's an important book to read. And and I was telling her that I think would be a really foundational one. And then there's another one that I think would be good for anybody, but I'm thinking of my daughter to read in a few years and it's a book called The Fountainhead by Anne Rand. And that affected me a lot when I was trying to figure out like, am I going to go out and do something on my own and be an entrepreneur and have that conviction and to go follow the discipline and and direction I'm going to go when everyone's going to tell me that I'm wrong to have the ability to fuse my line and, and follow that. I thought that book Fountainhead was, was really powerful in that. And it, I read it years and years ago, yeah. but I like, those are two good books that are top of my mind right now. Siddhartha and the Fountainhead. Maybe the only person I love that. those two together but, that worked for me. <laughs> yeah, you definitely are. I've never had those examples, but I, that's why I love to ask that question because I think founders, it shows maybe their period in time, or even just what impacts you and whether it's a strategy or philosophy or autobiographies, it's a way to kind of take your way out of the present moment, kind of do some personal, professional, spiritual growth, but then kind of recharges you back into. And I love to kind of get at what inspires other people. But last question before we give you a chance to give us your LinkedIn's and Twitter's and all that good stuff. Is there any question I didn't ask you that I should have? Is there anything that we didn't talk about that I should have brought up? Anything at all that we left on the table here today, Eric? I think you covered a lot of of all of the 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 brass tacks and and ways and inspiration to to become an entrepreneur. I guess what I would I would say less of a question but more of just share a, a point of view is that there are certain types of people that lend themselves to working in startups. And there are those who probably would not survive or thrive in a startup world. And I would just encourage people that are thinking about making the plunge to leave corporate world and go into a startup is to have a really clear eyed conversation with yourself about what the world how different the world is in a startup than it is in a big company with a lot of stuff set up. And where I've seen people that thrive are the ones that deal with change and they don't get put off and also non-perfectionists. 
because you don't have time and the luxury to get it perfect. You just need to get it good and make it yeah. better. And so I think really for people who have a good, who love startups, right? Like myself, I love them and I, I yeah. can't imagine not doing a startup, but I also like to do things that are really hard and I, I love the challenge and the ambiguity and the rapid change, but I have seen people who thought they liked it or they, it seemed almost like romantic, like, oh, I'd love to work in a garage and then they're working in a garage and, and oh, well, where's the cleaning service that comes in? And we don't have that. There's a garage. <laughs> so be careful what you ask for. <laughs> yeah. 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 I always like to think about like uh, when I was making the plunge, it was like, I guess coming to terms with the life I was okay to lead versus what is prescribed out there for you. I like how you bucketed up and there's no right or wrong decision. It's just what's right for you. And then just being okay with, it's not glamorous during the first few years, but the, if, if you enjoy it and you like it, you learn exponentially in terms of what you would learn in, in the other bucket, if, if you're not that type of person. So I love how you kind of summarize it there. And last little bit, Eric, is uh, where can we find you? Where can we be a fan? Give us your plug. Where are your LinkedIn's, your Twitter's? Where can we not only be a fan of Strata, but also you as a founder? Yeah, wonderful. So on the company, if you like what I've been sharing about identity orchestration and securing these complex worlds, our website is a great place to start. And you can find that at strata.io. That's S-T-R-A-T-A dot I-O. And if you go and share a challenging use case in identity, we've got a, a nice little promotion on our website at strata.io slash podcast, where you can send in your identity challenge. And if we can show you a demo of it, we'll in practice, we'll solve it. And we'll give you a pair of the Apple Air, EarPod Pros. And that's kind of fun. And then if you're interested in, in following me, I'm on LinkedIn and at the LinkedIn profile, my, my handle is bought, not sold. And that's the way you can find me on LinkedIn, Eric Olden, also on bought, not sold. And uh, yeah, I'd love to be in touch, connect with me on LinkedIn or follow. However, you'd like to continue the conversation. I'm happy to help. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Eric. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. I hope you enjoyed yourself on Behind Company Lines and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Of course.